Hello and welcome to Collision's YYC Follow the Money Investing with Purpose, a show where we have real conversations with the people who are driving change in our community. I'm really excited today and the the the, the spider web of connections has never been more true today when I talk to Mr. Maz Dalgard from Rakovina, um, a company that was brought onto my radar by Mark Mitchell, a two-time guest on the show actually from Red Thread Ventures, as a company I should talk to for not only a company that's doing some amazing work in their field, which we're going to touch on a little bit with Rakovina, but also a company that they didn't invested in. And part of our follow the money theme is to do exactly that, talking to people on both sides from the investor to the investee and helping our audience get a little bit more of an understanding of kind of how these different sectors work from an investment perspective. And then we're going to geek out a little bit, Maz. We're going to get into the science and probably the thing that makes you the most excited about what you do and the problems you solve in the world. So with that, I'll stop talking and turn it over. So Maz, give us a little bit of the elevator pitch on uh, Rakovina Therapeutics and let's go from there. Yeah, I'm happy to. So Rakovina Therapeutics is a relatively early stage biotech company uh, that develops drugs for uh, cancer. Um, Not any specific type of cancer, but cancer in a more broad term. Okay. Um, We are focused on um, targeting what is called the DNA repair system in tumor cells. And that's not really anything we invented uh, as a concept. It has been out there for, for quite some years. Um, and uh, But we have taken it to a new level uh, okay. and further developed the system. Yeah, I'm curious, just that right there where you touched on, when you're starting a new organization, because you guys have been around for a year and a half, kind of formally, again, based on based on my LinkedIn, my LinkedIn research, you made a comment about taking something, this isn't new, but maybe the way we're applying it and just understanding the evolution in biotech, you know, I guess the difficulty or the challenges or the opportunities that exist when you're building off an existing quote unquote technology versus going, hey, the world's never seen this before, but guess what? This is going to solve all the challenges. From a startup perspective, is that a very different journey from one to the other? I think it is. Um, biotech is quite uh, unique in that in that sense, because uh, in the beginning you you have all these small incremental uh, goals and milestones that you have to to reach, but the real value is unlocked um, when you are actually able to take your uh, your your asset, your product into the clinic. Okay. Um, so you have this. You know, it's incremental, uh, not flat line, but incremental uh, small steps ahead. And then suddenly, uh, boom, then uh, then you unlock everything. That's usually the journey. And is that journey a little bit shorter if you're starting from an existing, or am I, be, I think I'm being too literal, which I'm okay if you tell me I am. We're starting from a place of like, this is already a known and trusted technology that's proven valuable. Okay, we're going to go and turn it into this or augment it or to kind of continue the journey from that time frame of, like you said, getting to actual clinical trials and where that real value starts to show up. Is that shorter when you're starting off a launching pad or does it really just depend on the situation? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, uh, what I meant was that the concepts that uh, that we are working uh, in is is known, okay. but the actual assets we are developing are first in class. So okay. uh, we we are actually operating as a biotech. If you had something that is is known that you want to apply 
to something else. Then you are not a biotech. Then you uh, are a radio Okay, farmer. thank you. That, you answered my question <laughs> that I hadn't really asked clearly or not. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so very yeah. specific from a biotech or that category yeah. of space that you're in is because you're taking a known philosophy, but you're applying it and creating a whole new way versus just taking an existing, hey, this has worked over here. Let's just move it over here and see if it can have a similar effect without changing the core technology. So that's where the biotech comes in. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Pardon my ignorance. This is why I have these shows so I can learn and understand because these words get thrown around so easily. And it's oftentimes yes. we don't take time to go, wait a second, what does that actually mean? And so, okay, that really categorizes biotech. Something you said to me on our first, on our first, on our pre call, our first date, as I like to refer to it, is our second date because the first date went well. Um, you guys went public on day one. How much of a strategy from a financial and the ability to get funding and to fuel the fund, the research that you're doing in this development, in this journey, how much was that a strategic decision and how has that worked out for you guys? Yeah, I mean, that was um, a very strategic decision. Uh, there are many ways you can raise money as a, as a biotech. Uh, obviously, um, there you can either go through the traditional venture groups or or angel investors, or you can, uh, if you have the opportunity um, and someone to support a public uh, entrance, then mm -hmm. then you can you can raise the money at the stock market, um, and and the you know it really came out of an opportunity. Um, where we were lucky to have uh, groups uh, behind us that, that would support um, entry into the TSX venture. Um, and and so, so it was a natural instrument for us um, okay. to use at this point. Any challenges? Again, I'm going to make broad statements so you can correct me. I've had so many friends that have done the go public and a lot of them, half of them, maybe I'm just going to pick a number. We're like, oh my God, I wish we never did that. That was so much hassle and reporting and accountabilities. And it actually drew our focus in the wrong direction. How has it been for you guys? Is it, has, was that the right choice of a vehicle? And has it, has it done, has it done the job that you needed it to do? Or maybe any lessons learned that you would do different if you could do a redo? Yeah, no, I think it has worked out uh, quite well. Um, obviously, the the stock price uh, is not moving that much here in the beginning. I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine um, it would be a high volume no. kind of high like transactional yeah. uh, stock. Mm -hmm. And and you know there are days where the stock is not traded. Um, I think you can you can buy the stock up uh, if you want to, but okay. but someone has to sell. Obviously, <laughs> yes, there is two sides uh, of that to... equation. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, um, uh, so. Uh, but but it, of course the volume is not is not huge right now and and the people holding the stock um, are, um, are for a big part of it um, you know uh, people that we are work working with and, yes. and who believes in the future of the company. So I appreciate it. if I'm picturing this in my mind. There's the open stock market that we all know about, read about, hear about, and and some of us play in successfully, some of us gamble in, some of us play in and not. But in this case, these are still people like you talked about, venture partners or angels. These are all still people that quote unquote or for the most part know you and are invested in. You just gave them a vehicle that created the mechanism for them to invest. But this is still not a lot different than going out and doing a raise and getting in front and telling your story and getting buy-in from your partners. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's pretty much the same actually. Okay. I mean, here you do most of the work, uh, you know, before uh, you 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 take it public, um, uh, and you know when you when you raise in venture, 
space, then it's kind of a more continuous uh, path where you where you keep you know getting involved with with venture groups that that can potentially support you along the way. As co-founder, president, and CSO, uh, chief science officer, um, how much time? Because I've often heard from a lot of startups and a lot of entrepreneurs, like, "Oh wow, like man, when you," I talked to someone the other day and did a series, did a series A, I think at sixteen million. He goes, "Like, I literally was taped to my office chair for like ninety days, like just on Zoom calls all day." Following this path, has it also been beneficial from you in terms of not like how has it been in terms of your time and requirement? Because obviously you're running a company that has a deep root in science and you are a guy that's probably spending time in there doing the thing versus out there taped to your office chair raising money. Did this vehicle also allow you to maybe not have to be as you know engulfed or maybe engrossed in that experience through the way and allow you to stay focused on the business? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I could imagine us uh, being quite time committed to doing road trips um, if we had to engage with with multiple venture groups, and and it's also a time consuming path. Um, here, when we enter the stock market, it's it's just out there, right? And mm-hmm. um, and um, and when you have people behind you that that backs the team then of course it's less time consuming than than if you have to be on the road all the time yeah that's and again i've heard those stories so i was making my own assumptions but i wanted to kind of clarify so talk to me a little bit about you guys are based you guys are based out of vancouver Um, you're calling in from where just to give our audience some perspective what what part of the world are you in right now Mm -hmm. i'm uh, just 30 kilometers north of copenhagen in denmark okay and you're based in vancouver Tell me a little bit of your perspective or kind of your awareness, the biotech industry in the space. I've had a few clients on talk or a few guests on, I should say, talking about it in Calgary and that it's there's a fairly active community here, but yet it, it struggles a little bit. The investor market isn't necessarily super comfortable with the space as much as they are with maybe different industries like the energy sector, obviously. But can you give us a little bit of, you know, again, why Vancouver? Were you based there? But also what's the community like in terms of the uh, investors that are very aware and comfortable in investing in these types of businesses and even your own ability to partner and get the right people on the team? Yeah, um, uh, Vancouver is for sure getting better and better in biotech. Um, Ten years ago, there was, to be honest, not not a lot of traction in that space. Um, um, We have a very good organization called um, Life Sciences BC that uh, has kind of uh, been the hub for biotech in Vancouver. Um, but what has happened over the, the past 10 years, I think, is that, that some of the biotechs have been able to grow substantially. Um, we have had a very successful IPO from Abcelera that uh, gave a lot of traction uh, in the space. Um, it's always good with these success stories uh, that comes out, um, and, and Abcelera was for, for sure one of them. Yeah. Um, then we have the University of British Columbia, which is uh, uh, obviously a top-rated science and medical faculty university mm-hmm. um, that uh, delivers and educates uh, thousands of students. Uh, so there's a, a lot of uh, workforce uh, actually available in Vancouver. Lots okay. of people want to live in Vancouver 
for other reasons. Yes, the uh, lifestyle than, than factor work. of Vancouver is quite a draw yeah. on a sunny day. Anyway, it's quite a draw. It still rains yeah. a bit too much for me, but that's another that's another story. <laughs> As an Albertan who gets spoiled with sun a lot of the time of the year. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, so, so I think all the, the you know, the different uh, things that needs to be in place um, are, are there, and it's okay. it's getting better. Yeah. The tie into the university, obviously yourself being coming from the professor background, I've had a few guests on from uh, University of Calgary and they said, wow, you know, 10 years ago, uh, the, the draw or even the, the open door for professors to become more involved in commercial ventures and to commercialize some of their research. Uh, the, it sounds like, or what I've certainly heard is there's been a big trend over the last bunch of years where you're seeing a lot more and that it's actually more encouraged to actually blend those together and to partner with the commercial sector to take these ideas out of the lab and then get them out on the road and see what can be turned into is that experience that you've had as well it is um i think university of british columbia that that i'm affiliated with um has uh, moved a lot over the past decade uh in that direction you 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 mentioned here uh for obvious reasons because um you know in the end the students that we educate will go out in those sectors hmm. um and and to be integrated and collaborating with the industry and the, especially the biotech industry it integrates everything into the path that all the people that we educate uh, has to follow uh, not everyone coming out of science at the university becomes professors right very few most of them actually go out in in real jobs and uh, and <laughs> i would and, never um, make a statement like that Maz. I'm glad, i would never say that <laughs> In the in the quote unquote real world, yes, absolutely. So, hey, I'm curious. Do you look at yourself as an academic, as an entrepreneur, as again, what what label would you give yourself? Being that it feels like there's a straddling of a couple worlds here. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see myself as an entrepreneur. Um, I have um, um, started two biotech companies before Rakovina. Okay. In uh, that are located in Denmark. Um, um, and uh, we have a, a you know a lot lot of engagement and a lot of lot of development with industry and biotech um, and I like the mix to be honest between academia and biotech because academia is kind of the playground where you can do anything you like uh, almost. Uh, <laughs> almost you can try things you can try things that that are not obvious uh, you can you can take risk that you are not able to take in the same way working uh, mm -hmm. you know, on, a, on a strict research and development path uh, with a company. Um, so, so it's a good mix. Um, and then you can take whatever works from academia and develop it further. And you, the university will support you. It certainly feels like an excellent way to de-risk opportunities or as much as possible because there's always, so from your perspective, if you're meeting with, if you're talking to potential investors that are looking to maybe are new to the biotech space, we'll talk about people that, you know, people that have invested in it, they've kind of gone through that journey and become more comfortable with like, oh, it's not, the value isn't there. Then like you said, all of a sudden it is there when we hit clinical or we get reached certain patent levels. I guess what advice would you give somebody who's listening to this episode saying, you know, biotech, that's a space I'm interested in, but I'm a bit intimidated. I've never invested there before. What was some of the kind of key things or what, what advice would you give but also what should they look for to get comfortable with that space or what are the key markers 
Yeah, I mean, of course, um, you need to do some relevant due diligence uh, as a new investor into into biotech. And um, if you are if you're completely new there, I would probably recommend that you um, that you get together with uh, a few people that has experience in the sector um, as part of the due diligence that that needs to be done uh, as an investor. Go, um, go, go in alongside and, and sit at the table with people that know the right questions to ask and have probably yeah. been down the road and learned some yeah. hard lessons before. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and of course, you know all the normal questions. What's the uh, what's the opportunity? What's the market size? Mm. Um, you know, some biotechs develop uh, products that are uh, very specific for a very small uh, mm. medical condition. For example, other biotechs are, are more broad and can catch a bigger market. Um, so all these things needs to be considered uh, for an investor to go into biotech. And the investor should be um, should be uh, very clear that there is a considerable risk uh, associated with biotech, okay. especially in the preclinical uh, stage. Mm. Um, and so, so it's kind of a, a um, you know a I wouldn't say a lottery note, but I would say it's definitely more risky than commodities on or other other areas to invest in okay. but the reward is also substantially higher so that's the that's the trade that's the rub right if you know are you willing to yeah. take the risk because you might have five on the go but one of them is going to be a 100x or whatever the whatever the kind of and is yes. that typically you mentioned the real gap between getting to clinical trial environment it, what role does patents and just like the like the ability to own the science and the ability to say hey we've got the rights of this so therefore we've got the value of this thing for the next 20 years how much does that play a factor is that the factor of where like that ownership over this solution and then we can I actually want to talk a little bit about actually what you're working on so we can we said we were going to geek out a little bit on the actual solution so <laughs> what does that look like from an investor's perspective? I've invested in Rakovina now, and then a year from now, is it you get a patent or you get approved for a clinical trial? Like, what would be a trigger that I would see that would automatically push that stock up, just for the sake of the conversation? Yeah, no, um, our patent strategy is is uh, is very very substantial in the sense that all all patents have been submitted. Okay. Um, in biotech, um, the strongest pattern you can have is composition of matter patterns. It means oh, that okay. you are able to pattern um, an actual molecule, for example. Uh, okay. um, because uh, in biotech, when you're working with living things and organisms and genes and proteins, uh, obviously, you cannot patent something that nature invented. So you need. <laughs> I'm to, sure people have tried, um, but that's another story. <laughs> people have tried; it didn't yes. go well. Um, <laughs> so, so you need you need to either protect uh, an actual new substance, a molecule, okay. or uh, uh, an antibody that you have made synthetically, or you have to protect the use of something in the space. But of those two strategies, the composition of matter pattern is, is the strongest. So if I'm an investor, for starters, and I'm looking at a potential biotech investment, that's going to be one of the things I look at. If this works, will we be in that category? Because if not, you're patenting the use of something that's already existing in nature. That might be a little bit trickier or maybe clearly wouldn't have that exponential value that I would have if I owned the molecule, if, if you will. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would that, say That makes perfect I, sense I mean, when you lay it out. I appreciate that. Mm. 
Yeah, if, if it's not a composition of matter, it doesn't mean that, that the the use of something is not patentable. It okay. just takes a little bit more due diligence uh, to make sure that, that everything is right. That what you said in your process that you're proposing is actually what you own and that the outcome that you've, you've suggested is actually going to be obtained. So for you guys, obviously you're on. So talk to us a little bit about the science. Let's put your, let's take your entrepreneur hat off for a second and put your professor or science hat, researcher hat back on. Share a little bit because if, if, if our audience is still listening now that we know they're interested, they're 20 minutes in, they're hooked, they like what we're talking about. Talk to me a little bit about the, the problem in the way that you are solving it with Rakovina and maybe we don't go too far down the rabbit hole, but let's give us a little bit of the science of what you guys are building. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be happy to. I'll try to explain it in 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 layman's terms. The I appreciate here. that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what really makes tumor cells different from uh, normal cells is that they divide rapidly. I, I'm sure everyone can appreciate that. Um, so you have this more or less uncontrolled uh, replication of cells in uh, in your body in a certain site. And um, when cells rep replicate very fast, then they make uh, errors in their DNA. And that needs to be repaired because otherwise all the cells will have a, a, a program that will force them into a cellular suicide. Um, so they need the re DNA repair to work very efficiently. Um, so what we are developing here is inhibitors to DNA repair. Um, and because um, the tumor cells specifically needs this system to work, uh, because those are the cells that are dividing most rapidly, then you have a selectivity towards the tumor cells when you, you know, systemically inhibit DNA repair. Okay, so, but it, then it can specifically yeah. zero in on those cells that have this specific profile because of their nature of the way they're yeah. replicating, trying to yeah. basically target without impacting the whole body and the entire system. Exactly. You can say the tumor cells are, are most vulnerable to inhibition of DNA repair. Hmm, so, okay. so those will be the ones that, that will be targeted the most. And is this... Again, all cancer cells, which I know is maybe a broad statement, or does it very much narrow into specific? And you said, I think, tumor, solid tumors, you said in our mm -hmm. last call. So does this catch 20%, 30% of the potential cancers or the more, the more unfortunately, I don't want to use the word, the more common, I don't want to say the most popular, that's a bad way to say it. Yeah. The most common, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, actually, the, um, the DNA repair inhibitors or POP inhibitors, as we also call them. Okay. Uh, that has already been approved by the healthcare system and the FDA. Um, they have specifically been deployed in subtypes of tumors that has uh, small defects in certain areas of uh, their DNA repair system mm -hmm. that makes them more reliable or reliant on the some of the other main paths of DNA repair. Okay. Um, and that's where you have seen this very strong effect, uh, and they have been quite successful um, um, with with the with the first generation of of POP inhibitors or DNA repair inhibitors. Um, but what we are uh, doing here is that we are trying to find ways where we can move the DNA repair inhibitors outside that space. Okay, to broaden, to, broaden the, the, to broaden the variety of tumors that it can actually impact. 
Yes, exactly. And uh, to do that, we we are uh, you know applying a few tricks to the well, molecules. We, we won't share we the secret developing. sauce. Obviously, there's a. Um, for you, when you look at this from the start of like, you know, we have a hypothesis, we believe we can solve this problem, we believe there's opportunity. Is this something you like, this will take us two years, or is it more, we're on the journey, and it might take us two, it might take us six? Like, again, we're staying away from forward-facing statements here, of course, but when you head down this yeah. path as a researcher, is it more, well, we don't know how long it's going to take, and but we believe it'll work, and we'll just keep working at it till we get there? Like, how does that go? <clears throat> you talk about software. We're doing sprints, and we've got our roadmap, and we met our milestones. With this, I feel that it might be, there feels like there's more variables at, at play that are far beyond your control to say how long exactly it will or won't take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, in biotech, it is quite, quite difficult to, to make strong predictions uh, about the time uh, that it will take before you, you enter clinic. Um, uh, but what I can say that we have made the proof of concepts we need for the for the technology that we have, the small molecules that we are developing. Uh, we know that they are doing what they are supposed to do. So for our um, for our point of view here, it's more like making refinements um, to the molecules that we already have um, and uh, selecting. Uh, the actual lead compound that we want to put into the clinic because when you make that decision then you are committed um, uh, because you need to produce clinical quantities of that molecule and it has to be produced under certain uh, strict conditions um, so so it's a it's a significant time commitment but also financial commitment for the company when we actually make that choice because um, that's to pardon the simplification, but that's the horse you pick to put in the race. And once you go through that yes. journey a year down the road and realize that maybe we picked the wrong horse or the horse didn't work out the way, sorry, I'll stop with the horse. Yeah. The, the substance that you yeah. chose, did the molecule didn't work out the way you literally are going back to the drawing board at that point is, is the risk or the reward right at the end. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and that's, that's also why we are focusing on, on three different uh, conceptual paths. Okay. So we have like three different series of, of molecules that we are moving forward uh, at the same time. Um, and that's really to de-risk the project. Yep. Um, and, um, you know, because a one-trick pony uh, is considerably more risky than <laughs> if you have um, a, few, a few options uh, to play on. And uh, so that's how we build our company just to balance out the risk and to, to be able to try yeah. different things at the same. But I just understand why financially that increases the potential odds of success, but also the amount of capital that's required to, to move that down the path. I was, I'm going to ask I was at a panel discussion last week. It was the Alberta blockchain symposium and they had a panel on health tech. And one of the comments in the room was that typically the comment was 17 years from where some new, a piece of new technology in the health space, a drug or whatever it may be, up to 17 years before it actually reaches the the market adoption where it can have impact on a broad on society at large and i didn't it was just a passing comment but the number really landed on me of like wow so the 17 years is a considerable period of time to think about the stage you're at now like in that context is that accurate or you know and again i apologize i'm not giving giving you enough of the context yeah. around the whole conversation but from where you are now to where the public could see the actual benefit and you know our loved ones being helped by this type of solution 
is there a kind of a period of time or does it really depend on it? Or is 17 years, is that, that, that number just struck me as quite long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is long. And, and that's the, the, uh, the years you usually see when you are developing something completely from scratch. Okay. Where it's not only, uh, your, uh, your treatment and your molecule, but the actual target is also new. Um, uh, so you need to go through a lot of hoops, uh, preclinically to prove okay. that your target is actually valid. Um, so then, then 15 years or, or 17 years can happen. Okay. Um, in our case, um, the, the concept and, and the, the proof of concept for targeting DNA repair has already been made. So we are not we are not going through that kind of uh, time frame, okay. but um, but we could be be looking at anything for uh, from a couple of years to yeah maybe three years. Okay, no interesting yeah. context. The seventeen year yeah. number really hit me, and of course it was in a yeah. broader conversation panel discussion. I didn't have the context to it. Um, I think the, the woman who said it is actually coming on the show in a couple of weeks, so I'm going to ask her about it specifically. But you, yeah. you're you're my current you're my current expert, so I thought I would, I would ask you. Yeah. So to round it up a little bit, obviously you've had multiple experiences with 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 biotech startups. You're currently this is your third. Any advice that you'd give on both sides to an investor who was looking to get involved in this space, which you kind of did a little bit, but more specifically, another professor or another researcher that's listening to this, thinking about their own journey. Any advice you would give, kind of, you know, a little bit of lessons learned from 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 in the from doing the thing? Yeah, uh, I mean, for, for for researchers, the the absolute most important thing is to um, to claim your intellectual property early in the process. Hmm. Um, what I think many researchers are doing, uh, working in academia, is that they are kind of forgetting that part a little bit. Oh, okay. And as soon as you publish something, then it's basically uh, not patentable. Because it's in the public um, so, domain at that point, it's been yeah. released. And academia um, works a lot, uh, you know, because of the publications. Um, so the research they're doing uh, gets published as, as soon as possible in, in, in journals, because that's a, an important measure for academia uh, of success. Mm, I see where those two actually um, conflict with each other. <laughs> yes, so I would say for, for, for researchers, that's what, what you really have to think about. Um, get your IP protected early, because if, if it's in the public domain, then it doesn't matter if, it, if it's a good idea or not, or if, if it works or not. No one will touch it because mm. it's not patentable. Ooh, I bet that stopped a lot of really good uh, good businesses right in their tracks of going. Wait a second, is this, did you publish this? Oh, okay, conversation's over. Hmm, okay, yeah. But it's interesting. That's an interesting transition when that's part of the DNA. Sorry to use that, but the DNA of uh, the research and that that academic environment, which then is a direct conflict to commercialization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is, um, and, and but you know UBC uh, is doing a lot of work to bridge this, uh, especially here over the the, the, the past uh, decade. So so it's getting better. Um, uh, researchers become aware, and that also translates into more patents. Mm. Which then, from a university perspective, is there a financial benefit to the university, or is it more? for them to also be able to show, look at these amazing innovations that have come out of our schools, that have come out from our students. And to me, it feels like a great marketing story, but is there also financial benefits to the university that way? Like, does it does it cover both sides? 
It it covers both sides. Um, I mean, there's definitely sustainability in uh, in in getting patents and, and publishing patents. Um, you know, uh, sometimes you know something turns out to be really really important and really good and uh, hugely beneficial from a financial point of view, and that's obviously a good thing for the university to have a um, you know a piece of that. Um, but the university is, uh, you know, earning uh, the majority of their income uh, because of the students. Right. And, um, Which and is, to fees. remember, what's your core business and what are, your, what are auxiliary businesses or auxiliary revenues? Yes. Yeah. But if, if you're in a position as an academic institution to, to showcase yes. um, your production, not only in terms of research and, 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 and scientific publications, but actually also in patents, and to showcase the step further than that, the actual translation into the commercial path, um, uh, then then that output output becomes very relevant for future students to consider. Well, what if, as a marketer, that's 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 the gold then, because you don't have to make up the value proposition when it's when it's laid out. You mentioned obviously. UBC and things happening in Vancouver and the life sciences BC playing a big part. When you look around the world, and obviously you have a global preview, uh, where does Canada sit? I know we can talk about province to province, but when you look at other parts of the world, are Canada, are we ahead? Are we behind? Are we in the middle of the pack when it comes to just the emergence of biotechs in relation to universities fully supporting it? And then obviously governments getting involved or, you know, groups like life sciences. When you, is there anywhere you look around the world and go, wow, we need to emulate what's happening there because they've really doing some awesome stuff? Yeah. I, I, first of all, I think that Canada uh, is, is, developing very fast these okay. years in terms of new uh, new biotech and also embracing uh, pharma. Um, uh, most of the activities uh, are, are on the East Coast. Uh, Vancouver is lagging a little bit behind, okay. um, but is, is still getting there. Um, if you compare Canada to some of the European countries that are uh, extremely successful in biotech uh, and pharma, for, for example, Denmark, okay. uh, that has, uh, you know, several uh, huge pharmaceutical companies uh, for a small population of, of 5 million people. Or if you take Switzerland, uh, that is also very big uh, historically in, in pharma, uh, then there's no comparison there. But, um, you know, I, I still think that, that Canada is actually sitting pretty good. When you look back at an, at an environment like Denmark, obviously one that you've got some... You know, deep knowledge of was it just simply a decision that was made and a movement was it government supporting it removing obstacles putting funding towards it universities embracing it was there a couple key factors that you know because i always want to see like well what what did they do 20 years ago to be where they are today kind of thing um yeah for sure it's politics um, okay. um and um it's also a, a matter of um creating an environment where the workforce is uh, is actually there hmm. um, and is targeted to this kind of industry. Um, and Denmark has been pretty good at that. Um, and they have been very good at uh, translating um, research into commercial paths. Uh, I see. Um, and also the uh, pharmaceutical companies in Denmark are supporting that transition. 
because it's obviously in their interest to get um, uh, exposed to new ideas at the universities. So they are supporting a lot of the research um, also to, to be able to be exposed for, for, for new interesting subjects and, and ideas. And it's, you know, sometimes I hear about Calgary that we're, the joke is we're 10 years late to a 20 year plan, which I think we're getting caught up on. But if you look at the oil and gas or the energy sector, the school system was built to support it. Like everything was exactly what you just described. Yeah. It's just now in a sector that's going through some very drastic changes and from, you know, more of energy transition and the schools are there trying to catch up, but we're just in that awkward place. But when it was working, all those same check boxes were in place. It just now the industry has gotten a, a big left hook. And anyways, we all, we all know what's happening in the energy in the energy sector but our whole yeah. infrastructure was designed to pump out a community that supported that exact and it did that for many 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 years so yes. you know sometimes you think about these things and we want to we want to flick the switch but these aren't overnight changes to build a biotech community like you said yeah yeah no it takes time for sure um and and yeah as I really appreciate one, thank you, allowing me to learn a little bit more about what you guys do. And I really appreciate your, the whole goal of the show is to allow people to kind of look behind the curtain, if you will, at sectors that you maybe hear about, or you've had a friend got involved in, or someone in your circle of investors or business people, like, oh yeah, I'm involved in this thing. And immediately gets scary because you don't, you don't know it. And I know there's a lot of that happening in Calgary right now as we transition to embrace other industries with the same big hug that we've always embraced the energy sector, which I'm excited about. So thanks for coming on. One, giving us your global perspective and knowing that you're rooted in Vancouver, not, not, not that far away, but it's amazing to me how much our ecosystems are different from Vancouver to Calgary to Montreal to Toronto. They are, they are very unique in, in, in their journeys, but I do believe we can all learn from each other. And Canada itself needs to compete on a global stage. We shouldn't be, we have to be careful with how we compete against each other. If you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> uh, Rakovinatherapeutics.com. You guys have a great website. Uh, check out, check them out on TSX. This is not a stock plug, but by all means go check you guys out anyways. RKV is the symbol. If anybody is, anybody is curious, no forward facing statements here. I'll sign all my waivers and, and, uh, and, and, and caveats. But uh, Maz, if there's anyone wants to reach out to chat with you directly, is there a good way to do it? Is it LinkedIn? Is it email? What's your, uh, what's your recommended, uh, form of communication yeah no i think linkedin is pretty good for for things like this and uh, i'm very visible at linkedin um so uh, everyone should be able to find me i appreciate it ma and, and just just for anyone who's taking notes m-a-d-s d-a-u-g-a-a-r-d thank you for giving me a little pronunciation lesson before we started the show but maz it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you best of luck with everything you guys are doing and i see uh, maybe six months to a year from now having back on and so where are we now and get an update on the show so i really appreciated your perspective it was very educational thank you 